This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to a very special radio therapy. Our show this morning is all about Parkinson's disease. We'll be talking to the experts about some of the new treatments and some new and amazing diagnostic tools discovered right here in Melbourne. And I'm especially chuffed to have with us Suzanne, who was recently diagnosed with Parkinson's. She'll be keeping us honest, making sure we stay focused on the person, not the illness, because sometimes doctors have a proclivity doing that. First up, we'll be speaking with uh, Vic McConvey. He's a clinical nurse consultant with Parkinson's Victoria. Now, why would Victoria need its own Parkinson's organisation? Well, it's because just in Victoria alone, there are 27,000 people living with Parkinson's disease. So there's a lot of work to do, education, support, research, community events, and Victor is here to tell us all about it. Our second guest is the recipient of some of Victor's organisation's largesse, Professor Paul Fisher of La Trobe University and, get this, a microbiologist, will be telling us about a world breakthrough in the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, which was discovered in his lab. Now, you'd think it'd be a new brain scan or nerve test, but Paul and his team have managed to achieve what could be the holy grail of Parkinson's diagnosis, a blood test. Prof Fisher will reveal just how a bacteria scientist pulled off such an awesome feat. And just in case there weren't enough professors in the studio, also joining us is Professor Meg Morris, also hailing from La Trobe University. Physiotherapy is Meg's domain, and in particular, exercise or dancing with Parkinson's. You heard right, dancing with Parkinson's. And it is truly one of the most remarkable programs you are ever going to hear about. I had happy tears in my eyes at the end of a documentary about the Dancing with PD program. Prof Morris will be blowing our minds about it. And of course, radiotherapy wouldn't be the same without Nurse EpiPen, who's studying up something over there in the corner, and Dr Perry Natal. Um, so much talent, so short a time. So stick with us for the next hour. Good morning, EpiPen. Good morning. Did you write in Epi Pengas? You know, I did. It, it was yeah. a bit cold it's to start with, but I'm nice and hot and toddy and smelly and whatever. Yeah, nice and smelly. <laughs> That's a lovely way of putting it. Hey, um, do you ride for the environment or do you ride for the fitness? Which fitness, one comes? Fitness, fitness, fitness. Yeah? Yep. Okay. You should say I ride for the environment. <laughs> I really hate doing it, but I'm just so committed. <laughs> and Perry Nadal, good morning to you too. Morning, Mel. Now, um, you've got a lovely story first up for catch-up. So yesterday I was scanning the paper and trying to find something interesting to talk about just very briefly because it's such an exciting program this mm. morning. Yeah. I'm so excited to be on yep. it. So I'm just going to do a little snapshot of a, an article I read about a, a man who is talking about... Um, internet dating and he's had depression in the past and still has bouts of it and really his his words for his um site or his profile is articulate witty devilishly 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 handsome that's a tricky word and how or should he put something like he has depression Mm. and it's not something you probably would put on your profile but would you put eczema would you put epilepsy is sort of i think your your frontline profile is something that will catch somebody and he says that if you're going to go out with him for more than six months he will have these bouts of depression Mm. where he's socially isolated and he's had treatment and he's stable Mm. now for two years but it's it's been a bit of a dilemma for him Mm. and so what actually happened so he doesn't put it on he doesn't and he just waits and I think it evolves over coffee that when you talk, when you start talking about who you are and what happens to you and what you're interested in. And how did you manage to get, I mean, what was the, the article was in the paper. How it's, did, it's how just, that happen? It's really just saying that um, about internet dating oh, and yeah. what, what happens for people when they put their stuff out mm. there on the um, sites. So there's RSVP and, yep. So I don't know. I mean, I reckon mm. depression is a really common phenomenon. Mm. Mm. I think that sometimes if you, maybe as a point of difference from other people, then the disclosure and the honesty rather than it being sort of a carbon copy of all the other people who say they're kind of got a great sense of humour and don't smoke you know, it might actually mean that (laughs) you might catch someone's eye who could go, okay well this is someone who's brave enough to be honest on an online profile, maybe that's an interesting conversation I'd like to have with them 
And and maybe is it somebody that would go for somebody like that that's had depression themselves or understands it in a family situation? I think if I was in my 20s and I saw somebody with depression, I, don't, I would I have to think about it. I don't think... I would, because I wouldn't want somebody to be terribly depressive and unwell, but as we all know, depression can be very well sure, managed. Sure. And, um, and and obviously it's a, it's a subjective decision as to what you put on your profile, not that I've ever put a profile on, but <coughs> I, I kind of, or, or even looked at profiles, but um, I, I, I'm kind of falling into the, the camp of, of uh, perinatal. That I like things that are refreshing and honest and look different and genuine. You know, I think, uh, I imagine so many of these things could just seem... Very generic. A, a cookie cutter, yeah, you know, yeah. and I here's somebody that says, oh, look, I'm, you know, this is me, you know. Yeah. And, and he is 50, so yeah. you would be expecting to Young. have had some, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not a 20 or a 30-year-old yeah, yeah, yeah. reading, wanting to yeah. go out with a 50-year-old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I've just thought it was interesting. And yeah, what would you put yeah, out yeah. on your... On on your on your ad for yourself yeah. but i have a friend who's a psychologist and she had a friend who was putting out stuff on a friend RSVP. who's got a friend okay yeah, yeah. a friend of a friend this is too distant yeah, for yeah, me yeah it's not yeah. me it's not me <laughs> and she didn't get any bites yeah. so the the psychologist friend said hey let's let's play with this let's make it really interesting and she put some wacky things on and mm. and then instantly she could she got some ticks and kisses or whatever you get so i just thought you know there's a job for some psycho- psychologists to go out there and help people Oh, so you know how like, you've got relationship consultants? You could have Can profile I, consultants. Pro- I'm sure there are profile consultants. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. There are, yeah, absolutely. Even if it's just informal, let me help you because you're my friend sort of thing. I've, but I would also say, and maybe it's just because I'm a psychiatrist, but I don't... Th- I don't have the same sense of stigma about depression, mm, obviously, yeah. as perhaps you might feel, because I, I suppose everybody That's, I speak to every we work day has <laughs> depression. Yeah. So yeah, we work in the field. Yeah, it's, it's not like it's a big... Yeah. I mean, it, it's obviously something that has to be addressed and it's something that um, people live with and it affects their lives, but it doesn't stop them being great people. And then, so and I, then I thought, if you met somebody lovely, his depression might be yeah. really minimal. Well, or even well, major, but it wouldn't make him like, yeah, not the sort yeah. of person that you want to be with. Yeah. I actually think it's a great idea. Well, you should have put it on his profile. I think I had this conversation <laughs> and I found myself a new career. <laughs> I'm definitely going to become a relationship consultant before they have a Epilepsy, relationship. diabetes, Everything. depression, well, actually, had I, hip replacements. Actually, I, you've just piqued my memory. I was hearing a show... I think it was on NPR radio about um, what attracts people in photographs for uh, for blurbs, and it was having an open, expansive profile. So you know, with, so having your arms out, you know, being the physically open, and I'm demonstrating it here on, on the radio oh, for, for the two well. people sitting he, in front of me. He's ready for a hug. Being open, <laughs> uh, it's kind of is symbolic of what you're like uh, internally as well. Hey, I've got a great piece of catch up about how surgeons are using less medication in their operations and who would have guessed who would have guessed that playing music to patients before their operation means they will require less medication because they are less anxious now if you think about it this what sort of music do you reckon would be uh, most calming mm. heavy metal Trance, trance music, soul, soul. You should go into trance. Yes, uh, uh, trance music would be great. Oh, that's funny. That would make uh, you feel calm. Very I can, trippy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. A bar could be a bit agitating. I'm, tempt, I'm tempted to say classical, but mm. I'd like soul. Maybe could you choose your own music? Like Aretha Franklin could, type stuff. On your consent checklist, oh, you yes. could put what, your, what, your, what sort of music calms you down. Jazz, soul. Well, what they actually found, and this is from a study at the Hospital Coquin in Paris, with 62 cataract uh, surgery patients, was listening to jazz, classical, or other restful music for 15 minutes. I'd take jazz. I'd take some Vince Mate. Jones. Mate. Oh man, it's going Sam. Oh, so good. Um, and but what they found the music, as I'm trying to scroll down, this was that the music, um, as it progressed. I think got slower in tempo and also there were less instruments so it kind of gradually led you into this very soulful, restful place. It's like, you know Packer Bell's Canon? Have you yep. heard oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You just listen to that and it just relaxes you. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Some Not of the Keith Jarrett piano pieces are pretty beautiful. Oh, the Colm concert. Man, that yeah. is just... Oh. Talk to you afterwards. Oh. 
we could bond about the Cole concert. So you you had a, a friend, uh, a surgeon, who did something. Yes. Yeah, so like so um, it's not sort of music, but it's aromatherapy and um, a cardiothoracic surgeon that was here in Melbourne a few years ago. He was very in um, uh, instigational in instigational instigational. Oh, radio does funny things to yeah, your voice, doesn't it? It's it's a good word. Um, <laughs> he um, instigated some really nice holistic approach to post-op care. So after you've had open heart surgery, um, your blood has to go to a, through a machine to do the oxygenation and you're without blood. And then they pour that blood back into you. And it's known to create some psychological um, ill health. So people feel quite depressed after cardio open heart surgery. And his big thing was a few days after the operation when your tubes and things are out is to get dressed to listen to some music and to also smell have aromatherapy and to feel like a human again because there's a temptation for people to hang around in hospital beds with the gowns on and you see their bare bodies and all sorts of things and catheters and but i think if you've got a t-shirt on and you've got your things around you and you're feeling more human yeah, it might yeah. help in that post-op recovery period Do you know i'm a bit disturbed about that because i've never heard the words aromatherapy and surgeon in the same sentence. Like surgeons in a room, really? Yep. They're, some of them are quite soft and fuzzy and feely, and <laughs> I don't know those settings. <laughs> you have good friends, don't you? Invite <laughs> me around for a dinner party. Yes, um, Coming up, we will be speaking to, uh, look, just some amazing people. This is just, I've been so looking forward to this show on Parkinson's uh, disease. We'll be speaking to Victor McConvey and Suzanne. Victor's from Parkinson's Victoria. Suzanne was recently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. You've got to listen to this show. Do not step away from the radio. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Dr. Mal, which is... or who is me? I can't remember the right grammar for this. Dr. Perry Natal and uh, Epi Penn. Joining us is uh, Vic McConvey from Parkinson's Victoria and also Suzanne. Good morning, Suzanne. Good morning. Now, you've been in a studio before, and we'll get to that. I have. But I can just tell from your technique already, you're a professional. Thank you're you. Put, you're going to put us to, to shame. G'day, Vic. How are you? <laughs> Good morning. Good. Now, thank you so much for coming in. I might start with you, Vic. Tell us about Parkinson's disease. And, you know, what is it? So, at the moment, Parkinson's is a disease where we have a progressive loss of a neurotransmitter called dopamine um, through dopamine-producing cells, which are largely in the brain, but also in other organs of the body. When the dopamine starts to drop, a little bit like petrol in a car, the, the, the body starts to slow down. Yeah. So it gets stiffer, slower. Many people develop tremor. Right. And what does that tremor look like? Is it, I mean, whereabouts is it? It's... Well, it can be in any, any part of the body, but commonly it's in the hand and it's a resting tremor. So right. it's a tremor that's present at rest, but when you actually go to do things, the tremor goes away. Right. And is this what you noticed, uh, Suzanne? I've never had a tremor and I hope I don't. I'm touching right. wood here. Okay. Uh, no, it was, and I didn't notice anything so much. It was more friends noticed, uh, especially my gait, uh, that wish I was shuffling like an old lady. And I thought that might be because I am an old lady because I'm in the 60s. <laughs> Um, but uh, uh, also, I had a couple of falls, and um, right. so something odd was going on. Yeah, and and Vic, is this something that happens as well as a, as a presenting a presenting sign of somebody that's developing Parkinson's that's a- changing gait? Yeah. Absolutely, it's really important because thirty percent of people don't present with tremor. Right. They have just more stiff muscles, and and the public perception of Parkinson's is so much that it's it's that sort of that that tremulous sort of presentation of the little old lady or little old man that shakes, yeah, but that's yeah. that's only a, a small percentage, large, larger percentage, about 70%, yeah. but 30% don't tremor. Gee, I look, being a doctor for 30 years, I didn't know that. That uh, That is astounding. And so when people come to their doctor, they, as you say, they may just come, well, they, not just, they may come with a tremor, they may come with a gait that, or, or a walking style that their friends have commented on. That's, mm-hmm. that's, you know, I hadn't a thought shuffle. of that. A shuffle, yeah. And um, how old are people generally when they're diagnosed? So what we know is that probably 80% of people are diagnosed around about the age of 65 or a little bit over. Right. But 20% of people who are diagnosed uh, have got young onset Parkinson's. And what, when you say young, I mean, you know, I'm four, not 40, but uh, let's just say anything younger than 50 for me is young. When you say young, young onset Parkinson's, what are we talking about? So we see, so certainly the youngest I've seen at the moment is about a 23-year-old. 
Really? Um, and you see many people in their 30s and 40s also diagnosed. Does it have a genetic uh, component to it? Probably around about 10% relates to genetics. Right, so that means if your mum or grandmother or somebody's had it, then you're more likely to? There's an in- increasing risk, yeah. yeah. Is, is there a, do we know, is there a gene or something? There, there's about 17 different genetic mutations associated with Parkinson's, some which are, uh, are high likely to, to cause Parkinson's and some which are just associated, which might have some influence with environmental factors plus that genetic change which might result in, in, in Parkinson's occurring. Right, and I know that there are certain things you can do for some illnesses which will bring them on more rapidly. Obviously, you know, smoking is bad for lung disease and so forth. Is there anything that people that you find in the histories of people with Parkinson's that they've done with smoking or anything like that? Alcohol? There, there doesn't seem to be any any significant mm. risk factors. Mm. Um, there, there's a from globally, there's there's sort of there's some strong research that suggests that if you're exposed to pesticides, there's about a three percent increase in those communities where pesticides are used. Right. Yeah. Um, if you smoke, for some reason, you're less likely to get Parkinson's. But, but we, we're not we, encouraging that. We're absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. But we don't know why that is. Really, it's um, fascinating. It, it might yeah. be that that. Considering that the peak age of incidence is over 65, if you smoked all of your life, you might not be getting oh, there. Right, 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 yeah. um, but it, it's a little bit, little bit more significant than that. But, mm. but we still don't know, and certainly smoking isn't a really good is, isn't a prophylaxis for Parkinson's mm. at all. Mm, mm, mm. And um, so, once somebody is diagnosed with, oh, in fact, how do you diagnose it? We should ask that question. How do we diagnose? Well, yeah. at the moment, the diagnosis is down to the clinical examination. So it's up to the skill of the doctor who sees the person with Parkinson's to sort of say, ooh, that, that gait's different or that, that tremor's classic of Parkinson's. But it's really important to understand that a lot of people don't present with a gait disturbance or tremor. They might present with other symptoms, might be some bladder frequency, might be soreness or stiffness in one particular region. So like a, a sto- sore shoulder. Right. Now, now, I've had sore shoulders for a long time. I'm a nurse. Yeah. Um, so... That can be a presenting symptom, right. yeah. Right. And, um, yeah, you go ahead, Suzanne. Well, I had the best possible person to um, to diagnose me uh, when I first went because um, without going into details, I had a 20-year um, engagement, let's say, with epilepsy. So I went to Dr Sam Berkovic, who's well-known as a great neurologist mm, mm. and my doctor, I'm proud to say. Mm. So it was, in fact, um, in January last year, that I, when I went to see him for my reg- regular visit, I oh. said, look, people are mentioning my gait and uh, sort of things, things, some funny things are happening and um, I get a bit of sort of unsteadiness on my feet occasionally and my left foot sometimes won't move across. And he said, okay, so I'll put you through your paces. So I had to sort of march up and down. It was all very basic kind of tests. Yeah. And uh, he said, oh, nothing to worry about. I don't think at the moment, let's keep an eye on it. Mm-hmm. When I saw him six months later, he said, you've got early mm. stages of Parkinson's. Mm. So it was all by observation. Yeah, and this is one of the incredible things about Parkinson's. I remember as a medical student and then as a doctor too, that it's one of the few conditions that there hasn't been up until recently a test for, like a definitive mm. diagnostic test. And I guess that shares a lot exactly. of similarities with, with our field in psychiatry. There's, there's just no <laughs> biological test that you can do. It's from really meticulous, astute clinical observation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And what, what are we going to do about treatments, Vic? I mean, what's, what do we have? So at the moment we have a range of oral medication therapies yep. which are based around boosting that level of dopamine in the body. Yep. So it's either direct dopamine replacement with tablets, um, enhancing its uptake with tablets or a patch. Um, Sorry, a patch? There's a patch, a... yep. yep. There's oh, a really? patch for Parkinson's. Um, it's one of our, our new pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And we've also got some other tablets that might change the metabolism of the dopamine in the brain to make it last a bit longer. Yeah. And we've also got... Um, deep brain stimulation surgery as, a, as an emerging treatment that we're starting to, to consider when we do it. And mm. we're starting to realise that the ideal time to do surgeries is probably sort of four to five years into that diagnosis of Parkinson's. And is that something everybody gets, the, the deep brain surgery? Probably, probably only 10% of people with Parkinson's will be have symptoms that are, that are going to be suitable for, for surgery. So deep brain surgery, take, I mean, I know that's sort of the far end and the kind of very kind of high tech end, but just... Mm-hmm. 
Take us through what that actually is. So, so what we, we're doing is we're introducing some electrical activity or some, some impulses into the part of the brain most significantly impacted by Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they, they, they do, it's continuous. So it has a, a sort of, it switches the brain's electrical activity into a more normal state right. from being underactive through lack of dopamine and we're stimulating those underactive parts and maybe even short-circuiting some of the overactive parts just to make sure that our movement's more, more sort of smooth and... and um, sort of flat. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a question? Certainly. So uh, you've got electrodes in quite quite deep areas of mm-hmm. the brain and then there's there's a bit like a pacemaker, is that right? Something external where you can kind of check what's going on and, and make sure that you can adjust the stimulation accordingly? Yep, it's, it's, it's very much like a pacemaker for yep. the brain where you can adjust the, the stimulation. Um, patients living with deep brain stimulation can adjust it, turn themselves up or down. Mm-hmm. They will often have a range. Really? So you can <laughs> fiddle with a little dial on your chest well, or whatever? Well, no, it's, it's like a remote control. You don't actually have a dial on your chest. <laughs> oh, okay. It's a remote control and you can yeah. dial it up or down? Yeah. That's well, we, people will have a, a range, yeah. but then obviously when you go to clinic to see the doctor, yeah. we've got a much greater range of, of flexibility and, and, and points where you might innovate that stimulation to actually address other symptoms that might have arisen because unfortunately none of our treatments actually stop progression of Parkinson's. Right. They just symptom, symptomatically control right. it. So, you know, I remember seeing um, Awakenings with um, uh, Robert De Niro mm-hmm. and there was an outtake of one of the scenes and, you know, he's a, he's a method actor, I don't know if you know that, so he really mm-hmm. takes on the character. And uh, so the scene, and during one of the scenes he was... Um, he had the side effect of too much medication and so his arm was swinging around, yeah. you know, which is one of the side effects. And uh, Robin Williams was doing his bit and then Robin Williams went on onto this riff and was just cracking up the crew and, the, you know, everybody realised the scene had, had finished because he just destroyed the scene with his great, ga- you know, just really going off on a riff. But there was De Niro just ticking away like this with his arm the whole time and it wasn't until the director said cut that he came out of his role and mm. I thought, man, that, that was just, it was a very powerful scene for me. And so I've, when I subsequently saw people who had had this side effect, it stayed with me. Mm. Yourself, Suzanne, have you had side effects at all from any of the medications or treatment? No, I've been very lucky. And considering that I still take a, a fairly low dose of Tegretol for the epilepsy, yeah. so I have quite a drug cocktail, you'd expect something would be happening. Yeah. And I, I'm frightened of side effects, yeah. um, although I've not experienced them very much with other drugs. So I've been very watchful. Mm. And no, as far as I can tell, mm. I well, haven't. What are some of the, the the kind of the activities that you would ordinarily do that the Parkinson's has gotten in the way of? It's interesting. It's not so much activities as just sort of daily life things. Yeah. Getting up out of a chair. Uh, again, I thought that was um, that was old age, but uh, not so. It's um, it's very much um, it's difficult. What, is it the stiffness or putting the emotions just, together? Just doesn't, or doesn't go. <laughs> you sort of tell yourself to get out of a chair and and I have to push myself to, to get out of a chair. If, unless it's high enough, like this one will be all right. Yeah. Um, it's that kind of thing. It's, it's just a weakness of the muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, Are there other times where you find starting and stopping difficult as well? Because I know that can be a problem. <laughs> Before I had the level of medication that I have now and apparently I'm on about a half sort of half not a half dose um, Mm. but I'm told that people have twice as much as medication Mm. as I do Um, and yet I have about four tablets a day so that seems quite enough for me Um, so before I had that yes yeah, yeah. There were things that were quite difficult. Um, Suzanne, you mentioned side effects what, and that you're a bit nervous about them. What are the side effects? What do you know about them? Uh, I know that, you know, there's, of course, the, the usual nausea, sweats, that kind of thing. But one of the weirdest things um, that I heard about, uh, which the doctor told me the very first visit that I went to, uh, was that um, there's, there can be obsessive-compulsive behaviour. Mm-hmm. And in particular, what really... Um, it shocked me was that um, uh, propensity to gambling mm-hmm. was one, and mm-hmm. I, I am and have been for many years a, a violent anti-gambling mm-hmm. person, mm-hmm. and um, so. Uh, but luckily, it hasn't happened so far. Yeah. That that's a that is a well-known side effect of a certain mm-hmm. category of medications called dopamine agonists, so the the drugs that help the uptake of dopamine in the brain, and we yes. estimate that actually impacts probably around about. 
sort of 10 to 15% of people on those medications. Good Lord. Um, but it's really interesting that when you get an impulse control disorder, it tends to follow a theme of something you mm-hmm. might have already done in your life, sort of with a bit more passion. Oh, interesting. So, so really? gambling is something that, that makes a lot of headlines, but if you've never gambled in your life, <laughs> you're unlikely to develop That's a gambling disorder. Me. Oh, good. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> Oh, I, I actually am. Um, I was going to ask a totally irrelevant question, but I'm really interested in this this idea that the things that you previously did and you did them in a kind of a pretty controlled way and mm. then suddenly they start to take over your life. What other activities are there that people complain about that suddenly become a real problem when they're on anti-Parkinson's medication? So with that particular class of drug, probably the most common thing we think we've got documented is um, compulsive eating. Right. And sort of grazing. Mm. And so it's usually not, not, not a significant issue. Yep. Um, but other things that I've seen quite remarkable, I've seen one, one of my patients had a hobby of building ships in bottles. Right. Um, and, and we realised that, that he, he had developed an impulse control disorder when we were at a team meeting at the end of clinic and every one of us who'd seen him had a ship in a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> So that was really not where I thought you were going to go. That's, that's amazing. Lord. So that was a, a classic example of hobbyism. Yes, yeah. yes, that is a perfect example. Yeah. You thought, you know, time to change the medication. We, we pulled it back, the problem went away. Yeah. Um, tell us, Vic, uh, what kind of um, activities and events is uh, Parkinson's Victoria involved in? So we're the, the peak information service for people living with Parkinson's and also some, some related disorders um, for the state of Victoria. So that's about 20,000 to 25,000 people in, in the state. Um, so we've got a multidisciplinary health team with physio, social work and speech pathology that, that anyone can phone into. Fair income. So you actually do clinical work as well? Uh, it, it's, it's secondary consultation. Okay. So, so phone us and we do a lot of talking directly to to people live with Parkinson's, yeah. their families, but yeah. also to other healthcare professionals to actually sort of increase awareness and understanding of their condition. Right. And probably some of the key stuff that we do is also in, involved in some of the research. So I, I know you have Paul Fisher on later on who'll talk about some of his research and we're a proud partner of that. Uh, actually, I noticed that on your website because, you know, I did a bit of research for the show, which is unusual for me, I've got to say, but I was quite <laughs> excited about today's show. And I saw that, uh, yeah, uh, along with the um, Michael J. Fox Shake It Up yeah. organisation, you, you uh, put a fair whack of money into research as well. And <laughs> Paul Fisher, who's coming on the show later on, was a recipient of some of that and uh, very exciting research, I've got to say. Absolutely. If people want to find you, what do they do? Vic? So probably the, the best way that people can find us is to actually search on the internet, um, so Google or whatever your preferred search engine might actually be to, for Parkinson's Victoria, um, and you'll come up with our website, which, um, which is a relatively new website. It's relatively easy to navigate. And one thing that you will see at the moment is you'll start to see that we're starting to promote our, our key fundraising event and awareness-raising event for the year, which is the Walk in the Park, which yeah. is the last Sunday in August. So tell us about Walk in the Park. Walk in the Park, it's a two-kilometre or four-kilometre um, walk from Federation Square along the river and back to Fed Square, um, which is a key fundraising opportunity for us at Parkinson's Victoria because we'd, we'd get very little government yep. funding to operate. Um, but also it's a fantastic punctuation mark when you can get three or 4,000 people living with Parkinson's and impacted by Parkinson's in Federation Square. Sort of, it sort of brings the community together um, and sort of, sort of says we actually exist. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming. Coming in this morning, Vic. Really, really appreciate it. Three triple R. We have uh, Suzanne, Dr. Perinatal Nurse EpiPen. I'm Dr. Amal, and Professor Paul Fisher joins us. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Nice to have you in the studio. Uh, you know, I was. Oh, this is just such. I keep saying such an interesting show for me. Tell us. Tell us your background. What you do? Well, well, I'm a microbiologist by training and a geneticist, I guess. So um, I, I work on a, a very simple organism that has cells very much like ours, and we use it to study human diseases. We've started in the last 10 years or so to study brain diseases, including Parkinson's, and uh, that's how we got into this. But we wanted to see whether what we were finding in that simple model system was really applicable to human cells as well. So how did you get into that? How did you go from being a microbiologist to saying, oh, hang on, this cell looks a lot or behaves a lot like a human cell? Uh, well, it, was, uh, it belongs to a, a, a group of organisms that are sort of a sister lineage to animals, which includes humans, of course. Um, 
And so it's been known for a long time that their biology is a lot like ours at the cellular and the molecular level. And so we were studying it for that reason. And we got involved in studying compartments within cells that produce most of the energy for cells called mitochondria and um, started to ask questions about how defects in the mitochondria can cause disease and then then led into brain diseases which are believed to involve defects in mitochondria. Now, I only know two things about mitochondria. One is that they're the powerhouse, they're like the, the energy source of cells where the Hang on, some reaction happens. Uh, ATPs made or something? Yeah, yeah, something yeah. I couldn't remember back from medical school. And also the genes for mitochondria are different for the, than the genes for our cells. Is that right? It's, it's more complicated than that. There are a small number of genes that the mitochondria have of their own inside the mitochondria, and that's because the mitochondria are actually descended billions of years ago from bacteria that invaded cells and they still have a very small number of their own original genes. Most of their genes, however, now have been taken over by the chromosomes in the nucleus, so the centre of the cell. So they're now part of our normal genetic makeup and those genes that are part of our normal makeup make most of the proteins that the mitochondria need. Doesn't, I mean, that just blew me away, though, that, you know, a mitochondria is a bacteria that invaded our own cells billions of years ago to make the energy for our own cells. I mean, that just is amazing. Yeah. Anyway, enough, enough of, uh, what do you call it, a te- teology. Um, so you're interested in this particular... What, what's the cell line called? Dictyostelium, or cellular slime moulds, they're also called. So, so we're, we're related to cellular slime moulds. Very long time ago, about one and a half billion years ago. That's reassuring. <laughs> And they make a model for human cells, and you found that there was a defect or defects in mitochondria can cause certain brain problems. Is that right? Well, we didn't find that. Okay. We, we started studying mitochondrial diseases, and other people had had so had found that brain diseases um, were associated with mitochondrial defects. Right. So that meant that what we were doing was related to. Um, the work on the brain uh-huh. diseases. So we started looking specifically at brain diseases as well. Are there any other mitochondrial diseases apart from brain disorders? Uh, yeah, mitochondrial diseases are really diverse um, because they're providing energy for the cells. So they can actually affect pretty much any tissue, but they're really complicated so that you can't tell from the symptoms whether a person has a mitochondrial disease. In one person, it might cause kidney disease. In another person, it might cause epilepsy. Another person might cause deafness or combinations of all of these things. But it just so happens that very often the brain is affected. And it also so happens that in diseases like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease and and many of these other major brain diseases, there appear to be defects in the mitochondria, at least when you look look in the brains of patients post-mortem. Mm-hmm. And how are you looking at their brains? So we're not looking at people's brains directly ourselves. We're looking at blood cells, actually, um, because you can't take pieces out of a person's brain while they're still alive. They it's don't it's like not very polite. No. <laughs> um, so um, we wanted to actually look at cells from patients that, that are accessible and, and you're able to get access to them easily and without um, it being too disturbing and for the patients themselves. Uh, so that's why we chose blood and started to look at these um, white blood cells. And the white blood cells obviously contain mitochondria. The white blood cells, like all of our cells except for red blood cells, mm-hmm. contain mitochondria. And what did you discover when you looked at these white cells? Well, that was where the shock came in because we were expecting to see a mitochondrial defect given that the literature says you should expect that in Parkinson's disease. Um, But when we did the experiments, we found the reverse. Uh, In fact, the mitochondria are functionally completely normal, but they are working four times harder, making four times as much energy. Fair income. Yep. And what, what might be an explanation for that? Well, we don't know yet. Um, they're, they're consuming most of that energy, so we know that um, we, we know that they're, they're consuming energy at a greatly elevated rate, and they're also making it at a greatly elevated rate. Um, but we don't know why they are consuming it. There are multiple possibilities. One is that um, they've got other problems elsewhere in the cell, and they're spending a lot of their energy cleaning up 
the debris from those other problems. Oh, right. Okay, so they're needing that energy to get rid of toxins and process chemicals that aren't being used and so forth. Yes. For example, one of the things that happens in many of these brain diseases is that you get um, defects in in the way proteins behave in cells so that um, some proteins can form what are called aggregates where they basically form clumps inside the cell. The cell has to clean that up and cleaning it up costs energy. And in Parkinson's, there's a particular protein called alpha-synuclein that tends to do that. Um, and so if you look in the brains of patients post-mortem, you'll find aggregates or, or clumps mm-hmm. of this protein in um, the affected areas of the brain. And so maybe what's happening is in order to clean this mess up all the time, the cell's expending a lot more energy. But we don't know. Is that the same in Alzheimer's as well with the amyloid plaques? No? Uh, it could well be, yes. Oh. So uh, Alzheimer's is another one of these diseases where you have these have clumps of proteins. In that case, it's uh, a different protein, as you said, um, A-beta, and there are also um, neurofibrillary tangles, mm. they're called, um, of another protein called tau. Mm. Um, and again the cell maybe has to spend a lot of energy cleaning that up. We haven't had the chance to look at Alzheimer's mm. patients yet, mm. so we don't know. Um, there are some drugs that work on the mitochondria, so there's some cholesterol-lowering drugs, Lipitor. How, do, what about people that have got, that are on those medications? I, I, I honestly don't know. We haven't tested any of those cholesterol-lowering drugs, so I, I can't say anything about that. So can I ask you a question then about this process that causes a lot of increased energy to be expended by the mitochondria the issue is not that they're expending extra energy the issue is that the byproduct of all that energy is toxic is that correct yes yes so one of the one of the byproducts of normal respiration normal energy production by cells in the mitochondria is production of toxic oxygen byproducts they call them reactive oxygen species because they react with everything. Um, and it's been around in the literature for a long time that those reactive or toxic oxygen species can damage pretty much any molecule in the cell so that over time um, the cells accumulate this damage. Um, there's two ways that you can have elevated production of these. One way is to have a mitochondrial defect and another way is to have overactive mitochondria. Mm. So people have always thought, well, this is because there are mitochondrial defects. But in fact, what we've shown is that in these blood cells that we're looking at, there is increased production of these toxic oxygen byproducts, but it's because the mitochondria are overactive. Suzanne, what's it like having somebody talk about your brain and your mitochondria sitting like two feet away from you? Well, having had a temporal lobectomy about 22 years ago, I can cope pretty well with most things. Um, But uh, what I'm interested in is, uh, are you saying that with this knowledge, we may in fact have a diagnostic test or at least a diagnostic tool? We, we may well have. So the, the difference between the Parkinson's patients and normal healthy controls mm-hmm. or between the cells from them was very dramatic. So dramatic we realised that it could form the basis of a, of a test. So in our sample of about of 40 individuals, 29 um, Parkinson's patients and nine controls, we would have misdiagnosed had we been using this as a test, only one individual. So that's very good. At the moment, however, we don't know how specific this is for Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. It, It may be that it will also pick up other diseases. So we've got to find out in the future whether it is applicable only to Parkinson's or whether we would get the same result if uh, we were looking at Alzheimer's patients or, sure. or other patients. So, Paul, it's very rare that I have a professor in the studio who can answer my questions about Parkinson's disease. Have you heard about this woman, maybe you haven't, in England who can smell Parkinson's? Yes, I have heard about that. So yep. I'll, just, I'll, I'll just frame it for the listeners. There's a woman in... Um, in uh, the UK, who who said that she could uh, detect people with Parkinson's disease just by smell, and so I can't remember University of wherever said, okay, here's twelve people with Parkinson's, here's twelve people without, smell them. She smelled, she got the twelve people right, but then she got one of the twelve people without Parkinson's wrong because she said they had Parkinson's. So they said not bad, but you got that one wrong, and then I think six months later, that person developed Parkinson's disease. Oh. Tell us, how is that possible, Paul? 
Well, well, I think I that's wish... an unfair question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's another question, actually, that I would like to ask, which is, so it sounds as though you might have a blood test available to diagnose Parkinson's uh, you just, disease. You just have to laugh at my question. I, I don't, but it's silly. He might be able to answer it. What do you reckon's going on in there? <laughs> Well, my answer is is twofold. Firstly, I wish we knew, yeah. and but secondly, there could well be changes in the cells of Parkinson's patients before they actually get Parkinson's, ah. and um, our our results tend to s- suggest that because we found that our test worked equally well whether someone was two years post diagnosis or twenty five years post diagnosis. Oh, really? Um, so if you project backwards in time, it suggests that maybe even before diagnosis, you might be able to pick it up. Um, and that's one of the things we need to find out as yeah. well. How yeah. early can we detect this? Yeah. Sorry, Perry, your question now after you jump on. <laughs> so sorry. But actually, I think my question has just been answered. So that means that people who say, for example, in Suzanne's situation, are aware that there might be something wrong or their friends might have picked up that there's something wrong. But when they do go through their paces with a neurologist, there's nothing clinically detectable. Mm-hmm. They might benefit from this blood test. Yeah, this is entirely possible. Um, as, as I said, we don't know yet, but we, we want to find that out. How early can we detect it? It might even be possible, if it did work that way, and now I'm just speculating, sure, sure. Um, if it did work that way, you might even be able to screen um, the general population ahead of time. Right. And when do you reckon this test will become come into the public realm? Just if you, you know, pie in the sky, what do you reckon? How long is a piece of string? Okay. <laughs> so that's what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there are uh, there are a number of questions we have to answer. Sure. I've already outlined a couple of those. To answer those questions, obviously we need funding. So the answer is, if we have enough funding, we can do it quickly. If we, the funding comes in a trickle, we'll do it slowly. Mm. But we will do it. It'll just take time. Uh, fantastic way to end. Uh, a really interesting segment. Thank you so much, Prof Fisher, for coming into the studio. Thanks very much for having me. And uh, good luck with uh, the research. Thank you. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Oh, it is such a good show this morning. We have uh, with us now uh, Professor Meg Morris. I've heard about Meg through a a number of different sources. Uh, And uh, Meg, you are a professor of physiotherapy at La Trobe University? That's right. Clinical and rehabilitation therapy. Right. And... um, Sorry, I'm just going to adjust your mic volume a little bit here because you're a little bit hard to hear. Uh, rehabilitation and what? Oh, clinical and re- rehabilitation therapy. Clinical and rehabilitation. At the Trove University. Oh, so I'm, right. I'm a physiotherapist. Ah, yes. Because it was my wife who first mentioned you to me and uh, she's a physiotherapist as well. So how did you get tangled up in, in dancing with Parkinson's and exercise with Parkinson's? Tell us about that. I've always been interested in uh, how the brain controls movement Mm -hmm. and how people with uh, conditions like Parkinson's benefit from physical activity and exercises. Mm -hmm. And years ago, I started some studies looking at walking patterns in people with Parkinson's. And what we found out was that people responded well to what's called visual cues, so lines on the floor like a little ladder. They could step over those and trigger the movements trapped inside. And we also found that they responded to musical cues, like auditory cues, like even the rhythm from a metronome beat or putting on rhythmical music like tango music. Uh, Those who'd come in the door shuffling would listen to the music and find that they could suddenly step out and take big steps in time to the music. So you were just, I mean, was this a serendipitous discovery where you had like music on in the waiting room and people sort of danced in or was it kind of you thought about it theoretically? <laughs> we had thought about it as part yeah. of controlled research. But as yeah. physios, we'd noticed as well that people responded to cueing. Yeah. And so it was this whole idea of finding out what happens in the brains of people with Parkinson's mm. and why do they, they respond to cues mm. and which type of cues respond uh, most favourably. Mm. Uh, Suzanne, did, I mean, do you have that experience that you respond to cues? I, I guess so. Um, music is very much part of my, my life, actually, yeah. so it's hard for me to sort of separate out where there isn't music and where there is. Um, but uh, I know that I, I actually belong to a group called Dance for Parkinson's, mm. as you know, because mm. your wife is, is involved with it. Mm-hmm. And 
I find it very interesting to, to watch everybody else. I don't tend to think about what's happening with me. I just kind of shake, <laughs> shake around and feel like a bit of a deal. Yeah. Um, but I am staggered at, at, um, at how, how, we, how we do it. I yeah. mean, we actually dance. We look like a real regular dance group. Yeah. And, um, and, and the interesting thing is that when people with Parkinson's dance, they dance automatically. Like they listen to the music and the music carries them along. But when they think about doing two things deliberately, they have this dual task interference problem. When they think about one task, the second task is performed poorly. So if they're walking along down the street and thinking about talking, then their footsteps shrink. Oh, how interesting. If they think about taking big steps, then their voice volume might drop. Yes. The nice thing about music is it's automatic. They listen to the music and it just carries them. They don't have mm-hmm. to think about each component and they don't get this trade-off between movements. That is fascinating. And, and what sort of music do you play in your classes? We've been trying different types of music and I do have a music therapist, Winifred Beavers, uh, working with us. And what we find is rhythmical music, at least 100 beats per minute, is very good for stepping and for walking and for dancing. E- you don't want it too slow because people with Parkinson's experience slowness of movement. Do you have a favourite, Suzanne? Uh-huh. Well, we have um, we have uh, a mixture, I'd say, of show tunes and classical music, and um, we have one particular slow thing, which is from the um, Pathetic Sonata by Beethoven, which has a fault in the tape. It drives me crazy every week. <laughs> Sorry, Gaby, putting that on air. Um, but yes, I would say that rhythmical music, um, things like "I Feel Pretty," um, and uh, oh, yeah. that that kind of show tune, yeah. and and faster um, music from the classics, like the um, Prokofiev music from oh, Romeo yeah. and Juliet, yeah, yeah, that yeah. sort of stuff. I would have thought a hundred beats per minute. Isn't that the kind of um, aerobic uh, that you have in aerobics class, like doof, 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 doof? No, or am I, no? Slow okay. Than that. <laughs> okay. But I mean, it's good to have slow music as a warm up. Right. You know, get the muscles moving, do some breathing exercises, and at the end of the class to slow down as well, gently to Which move we along yeah. to sati mm. or something like that. Yes. Yeah. But during the active part of the dance class, tango music. Irish music can be really good. Anything really? with a strong beat. Yeah. Yes, we've, we've started the tango. Um, I have a sore shoulder, so I've been sitting out the tango. I don't want to give anyone access to my right arm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. So we can do some dancing manoeuvres in the chair, sitting down on a chair, yes. yeah. or holding onto the bar, or yeah. holding onto the back of a chair standing up, and, and then when they're ready to start travelling across the room. Yeah, and some people elect to do that. Well, one lady in a wheelchair has to do that, obviously, but um, but it's always an option. Mm. Can I ask a question of both of you? Is that individual dancing? Because the tango, you know, I imagine there's two people tangoing together. Is that hard to do if you both suffer Parkinson's, for example, or do you find that the music just takes you along and you can coordinate with the other person? Really That's easily? a really good question. Most of uh, most of our dancing is choreographed individual dancing, uh, and we sort of work up to partner work, which is obviously much harder. Um, and because I have this sore shoulder, I, I tend to sort of keep out of things like waltzing to waltzing Matilda, which, by the way, is very difficult because waltzing Matilda is in four beats, not three, and uh, we're trying to do a waltz to it, which is quite difficult. That should be in three. But the important thing is everybody with Parkinson's is different. So you have to tailor the dancing to the person's needs. So some people respond well to tap dancing, for example. Others tango, others Irish. Some people like creative dancing. Yeah. And what have you found from research? I mean, have you you published? We uh, have. We've published six trials so far. We've got another trial about to start on tap dancing for people with Parkinson's. Um, This is amazing stuff. What we find is that the dance teacher is very important as well. We have to train the dance teacher and the physiotherapists work closely with the dance teacher to make sure it's not only beautiful dancing but therapeutic. Yes. Oh, that's what my wife says, Gab, when she takes a class. It's so much about that relationship, that interpersonal relationship, beyond the technical of, you know, put your foot here and move that way. It's about the, that almost almost intangibles of, of just being a, another human sort of relating to somebody else. And the lovely thing is it's a dance. The people attending the classes find it's not about Parkinson's. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the dance and it's enjoyable. And what happens after the class? Are there any prolonged feelings of stability or less Parkinsonian symptoms? Uh, That I don't know, of course, uh, so I'd have to 
leave that to the good professor here. So we have been measuring people before and after the dancing classes so that we find we have found improvements in walking speed with dancing yeah. in some people. Um, health-related quality of life can improve in mm. some individuals, but you need large trials. So the trials we've done so far are called feasibility trials, and we're gathering the necessary pilot data to actually then do a larger trial. We have actually done trials overseas as well. So we have looked at Irish dancing in Italian patients in Venice. (laughs) (laughs) And that's published (laughs) research. And uh, we had very beneficial results for the Irish set dancing for the uh, Venetian patients. Can I ask the obvious question here? (laughs) Uh, Why did you choose Venice for Irish dancing? Is Uh, it particularly popular over there? There there was an an international group of people specialising in Parkinson's in Venice and uh, they asked me to join with them because I had physiotherapy skills and also skills in running clinical trials. And then I got involved with that group and there were some Irish uh, researchers there as well. So now we're doing Irish set dancing for Irish patients with Parkinson's in Ireland as mm. well. <laughs> um, and tell us, in terms of uh, outcomes, you, talk, you said quality of life improves um, and there is some functional improvement, but what about taking the, 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 the dance or the music outside into people's lives? Like, do people then want to listen to more music and use music at home uh, differently? What we've done is that everybody who attends our research dance classes gets a a little USB stick for the home program. So we give them a one-hour home program. It's seated in a chair and hanging onto the chair um, just to make sure it's safe. Um, But potentially, if they had their own physiotherapist, they could modify that as well to the individual needs. So I think practice is really important. And even mental rehearsal, seeing the movements in your mind's eye can help a person to move more easily. Mm. That is just, uh, it's just fascinating what you were saying before about thinking and doing and how, I mean, I, I'm a terrible, terrible dancer. My wife's a fantastic dancer and I'm a constant embarrassment because I think it through because I'm very, was it left brain? No, right step forward, left step back. And she goes, no, no, just feel it, feel it. I'm like, trying to feel it, I can't feel it. And I guess what you're saying is with Park, with the, your program, it is, no, just feel it. Don't think about it too much. It's, you can overthink things and it gets you in the way. You can overthink. And for a person with Parkinson's, overthinking is the worst thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, it has been such a, a pleasure having, uh, having you in the studio, Meg. And Susan. Suzanne, I've got to say thank you so much for, for coming in and, and joining us. It's just been wonderful having you here, and I'm sure we'll keep the conversation going after the show. If you want more information about Parkinson's disease, hop on the web, look at the Parkinson's Victoria site. It is really a, a top-notch website, lots of information. You have been listening to Radiotherapy. We've had a, I don't know, a legion of guests this morning, um, and in the studio with us right now is Professor Meg Morris from La Trobe University. Thank you so much, Meg. Suzanne, who's come along, uh, who was diagnosed with uh, Parkinson's uh, last year and is attending uh, Dance with Parkinson's and is a great voice to have on air. <laughs> Perinatal, um, a colleague psychiatrist and buddy of mine and nurse EpiPen, who's been friends of mine for the last, well, probably 30 years, I reckon. You've been listening to Radiotherapy coming up uh, in the next five minutes. No, five minutes, ten seconds is, is Einstein a go-go. You, uh, you're going to love their show today. Have a great Sunday morning. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.